G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. I hope you enjoy the ride. 1993, Chapter 19, Easter Island, Tahiti and home. Just as 1993's journey back to Sydney had begun with a last-minute choice of Barbados as the first port of call, the last leg of the journey, my route across the Pacific, was decided on the run. It was in Ecuador, or maybe Peru, that my decision to fly out of Santiago, Chile, was made. It was a bit more expensive than a flight out of Los Angeles or Lima, but those few extra hundred dollars bought me a flight that included free stopovers in Easter Island and Tahiti. These destinations had been on my travel wish list for years, but always under the subheading, probably too hard and or expensive. Now, thanks to many months of scrimping on transport, accommodation and food, I had enough of my savings left to add them to the itinerary. Good times. The five-and-a-half-hour night flight from Santiago landed in Easter Island around midnight. Among the handful of people collecting their luggage were Tim from England and Ninette and Lenar from Denmark. We were the only backpackers on the flight, and we shared the back seats of the minibus that took us from the tiny airport to the island's simplest and cheapest accommodation, Anna's place. Here I could pitch my tent in the garden for just a few dollars a night. In the morning, we teamed up to hire a car for the day. As a case study in human behaviour, Easter Island must hold the world record for the most enigma per square kilometre. Where, exactly, did the island's first human inhabitants come from? Why, and how the hay, did they get here in tiny boats about a millennium ago, using only seabirds and the sky to navigate? Why did they carve over a thousand huge stone heads with truncated torsos and place them on the fringe of the island, with all but one group staring out to sea? How did they transport these 12-tonne heads 5 to 20 kilometres from the quarry to the coast? Why did they turn what was once a paradise of palm trees and bird life into a lunar landscape when they must have known they were destroying their means to survive? And surely they must have made contact with the Inca and other South American peoples. If they could navigate to and from the tiny, lonely dot of Easter Island, they must have continued onto the west coast of South America. And, to my amateur eye, the stonework in at least one of the platforms built for the Stoneheads seemed too similar to the stonework I'd seen on the Inca trails to be coincidental. Is there any evidence of Polynesian DNA in South America or vice versa? Anyone? Anyone? Our day bumping around the island's rough, dusty tracks was a truly once-in-a-lifetime experience. The next day we trekked up Rano Kao, one of a half a dozen volcanoes, all extinct now, that built the island slowly up from the ocean floor. Rano Kao is just an hour's walk from Hangaroa, the island's only small town, and our escort for the adventure was Hoppy, a little three-legged dog who spawned from somewhere as we left Anna's place. Unbothered by his missing front leg, Hoppy guided us up the steep track to the summit of the volcano, then lay down beside us while we snoozed in the sun. When another hiker emerged near our spot, Hoppy leapt up to protect us. But he stopped his snarling and barking as soon as we called him back. 
Then he expected the shell-shocked hiker to give him a good old pat. We met heaps of great little dogs like Hoppy on Easter Island. On the last day I found a couple of hours to ride a few waves. On the day we'd driven round the island, I'd seen at least half a dozen reefs where great, probably dangerous, waves would break in the right wind and swell. And just a short walk from Anna's place, next to a small island that marked the entrance to Hangaroa Harbour, a gentler wave broke left and right along a fairly soft reef. The ocean felt like a warm bath after the icy waves I'd been surfing in Ecuador, Peru and Chile, and a couple of young locals welcomed me to surfing on their island. Walking home beneath another beautiful Pacific sunset, I passed a couple of epically tattooed, long-haired farmers coming home from work on horseback as if they had all the time in the world, which they did. Easter Island was my first glimpse of the Polynesian culture I was to learn so much about in New Zealand over the next five years. On December 8th, Tim, Ninette, Lena and I took the six-hour night flight west across the Pacific to Tahiti. Arriving in the early hours of the morning, we teamed up to pay a small fortune for a taxi to Papayete, Tahiti's main port. This was our introduction to French Polynesia's no-income tax policy. Taxes raised in other ways, the impact of which I felt most when I failed to resist paying nearly 10 American dollars for the first packet of Tim Tam biscuits I'd seen for over six years. At the port, we waited in the humid dark for five hours to catch the dawn boat to Morea, the little island 25 kilometres due west from the main island. Dockside, we met Wilfred, a teenage guardian angel dressed in peak mid-1980s fashion right down to the rollerblades. He showed us the best, meaning safest, place to sit with our stuff until dawn. Then he led Tim and Lena to the nearest early opening shop where breakfast could be bought. When we returned to Papayete Harbour in the middle of the night a few days later, we realised how lucky we'd been to have Wilfred's help on day one. A classic guy. By the time we boarded the boat, the sun was up and it was hot. It was the first heat like this I'd felt since Panama four months before. And, to borrow from Spike Milligan, it felt like you could grab a handful of air and squeeze the sweat out of it. Gazing back to land as we steamed out to sea, we got our first view of the staggering beauty of French Polynesia. Steep volcanic hills covered in lush tropical greens reared up beyond the suburbs. The crossing from Papayete to Vallare, the small port on Morea's east coast, took about two hours. From there we took Le Truc, the public bus, for the hour-long journey round the south coast of the island to Camping Morea, now called Camping Nelson, I think. This spot was yet another great recommendation from Tim's Lonely Planet guidebook. For only five bucks a night, you could pitch a tent on a lawn bordered by a white sand beach fringed by the clearest, bluest water you could hope for. But it got even better. The nice lady who welcomed us asked if we'd be interested in going on a boat to the nearby islands for a picnic. I was exhausted. I hadn't had a proper sleep for three days, and the boat was leaving in just a few minutes. So I decided I'd have a quick sleep instead. But as I began to set up my tent, Martin, a surfer from Hamilton in New Zealand, told me the boat driver could drop me to the nearby reef pass for a surf. Then Ninette discovered the boat ride was included in the price of our accommodation. 
and suddenly I wasn't so exhausted anymore. Our ride was on a small white outrigger boat. The path through the shallow water near the island was piloted from the bow by a suave old local with an equally suave dog. They made a picturesque couple in an even more picturesque setting. Electric light blue water in the shallows graded to every shade of dark blue as we left the coast. Swaying, sighing casuarina trees partly shaded the bright white sand at the island. And in the distance, Morea's breathtaking volcanic peaks rose lush and green into a clear blue sky. After dropping the rest of our small party at the island, the skipper ferried me another kilometre down a shallow channel, then out toward the open sea. Here, about 600 metres from Morea's north shore, head-high ocean swells broke along both edges of a deep-water reef pass. The left on the western edge was best, but about 20 surfers competed for the waves. So the skipper offered to ferry me about 300 metres across the channel to the right-hander that broke around the eastern edge of the pass. These waves were shorter than the left and slightly ruffled by the cross-onshore breeze, but with only one other surfer out, the choice was a no-brainer. And what a surfer this guy was. While I was getting ready to dive off the boat and paddle over to the line-up, he airdropped into an overhead barrel and came flying out with the spit. For a couple of hours, he tore those waves apart in the nicest possible way. From my safety-first spot on the shoulder, I cheered him on, in between my cautious attempts to make the drop on the softer, wider ones and race a few sections. These weren't the most perfect waves I'd surfed in 1993, but the company, environment and atmosphere put them right up there with the most memorable. I learnt the other surfer's name was Phil Tribal from California. I'd seen pictures of him in American surf magazines, and he was on his honeymoon. After a couple of hours, we paddled about a half a kilometre across the lagoon to the hotel where he was staying in a room built above the water. From there, he gave me a ride on his moped to save me a long barefoot walk on the hot roads back to my campsite. I arrived home, eyebrows crusted with salt, surfboard under my arm, on the back of a champion surfer's bike, feeling like a king. Cheers, Phil. But still the day hadn't finished giving. After an epic open-air shower, we found it was barbecue on the beach night at Camping Morea. We'd bought quite a bit of food to cook in the communal kitchen, thinking we'd save money, but the barbecue was even cheaper, and way better, than the simple food we would have made ourselves. So great. The next three days were cruisy. We hitchhiked round the island's northern bays, meeting interesting characters on every ride. We hired mopeds for half a day and rode up into the mountains. We took the daily boat back out to the nearby islands for picnics beneath the casuarina trees. We snorkelled in the shallow waters between the islands, where I discovered that I'd spent my life living on the much less colourful side of the ocean's surface. And I shared another unforgettable surf, this time with Martin from New Zealand, and a couple of local rippers, beneath yet another breathtaking island sunset. You would have thought that after everything so far this year, the campsite on Morea would have been the place to spend the last few days before my flight back home to Sydney. But no. There are 121 islands in French Polynesia, and we decided we'd better take our opportunity to see at least one more of them, if only for a night or two. So we took Le Truc back to Vallade, and spent more than half a day travelling by boat to Huahine, another dot in the Pacific, 200 kilometres away to the northwest. 
So let's set that sail for the western wind. We're gonna blow for good and maybe back again. Oh, when something in your heart calls you away, don't hesitate for one day longer. Yeah. Hey, welcome home. Where we're never alone Oh, we're on the road Yeah, yeah Yeah, yeah Yeah, yeah Now let's There, at two in the morning, as we staggered sleepily off the boat, we met Jean-Luc, part gypsy, part Frenchman, part foreign legionnaire, part biker, husband, father, fantastic cook, and one of the best hosts you could hope to meet. His pension had simple rooms set in gardens near the northern shore of the idyllic Fare Lagoon. Among his other guests, Jean-Luc was hosting two Australians, Annie from Noosa and Sam from Manly, both flight attendants, on a short break from work. Each night, over sunset drinks, then extended dinners, we shared stories of our homes and travels. Waking at dawn on the second day in Huahini, I walked across the dewy grass of John Luke's garden and discovered black dots weaving white tracks on the waves breaking round the distant southern edge of Fare Lagoon's reef pass. I raced back to my room, ate a banana, waxed my board and headed out to sea. After 20 minutes and about 700 metres, paddling alone across deep, dark blue water, I found the waves were even better and quite a bit bigger, perhaps double overhead, than they'd looked from shore. The surfers, a couple of quiet locals and their noisier American friends, were getting mind-boggling barrels from way up the reef. Unlike my overconfidence in Barbados and Panama earlier in the year, I had the sense to recognise my limitations and sit wide to wait for the easier ones. After an hour or so, it dawned on me that I was alone. The four surfers who'd been my somewhat company had gone, just vanished. But I hadn't seen them leave. They must have ridden round the reef on that last good set and started paddling across the lagoon to shore. But where were they now? There was no sign of them or anyone else, as far as I could see, between me and the distant coast. Perhaps they'd been collected by a small boat I hadn't noticed. Perhaps they'd climbed aboard the only boat within sight, a tall-masted yacht about 500 metres away. Perhaps they'd seen a shark. If so, it would have been nice if they'd told me, or even just said goodbye. Anyways, whatever. It was time to get the hell out of there. But first I had to deal with the waves that were about to mow me down. Distracted by my search for signs of life in the lagoon, I'd almost missed the stealthy approach of a bigger, wider set. I was out of position to catch and ride one of them, and even if I'd been in the right spot, I wouldn't have gone anyway. The consequences of a cock-up were too grave. The best I could do now was to get around or under them before they dragged me across the reef. So despite my urge to head for shore, I had to paddle another 50 metres towards the horizon, up and over, 
three-metre-high slabs of raw liquid energy and further out into the bottomless ocean off the edge of the reef. Once the wave's detonations had subsided, I set out for land. I paddled toward the reef, not directly into the channel, hoping I'd find a smaller, peakier wave that would let me take off on its shoulder and ride the white water as far as it went. I got lucky, and when the hoped-for wave came, I rode it until it dissolved in the deep water of the lagoon entrance. Good start. Now it was just a half an hour paddle back to shore. But after about ten minutes of steady paddling, I got the feeling the land wasn't getting any closer. A sideways glance over my shoulder confirmed I was drifting backwards, slowly out to sea. This was a low moment. Now I saw there were a couple of people on the deck of the yacht I'd noticed before, but they were too far away to call out to, and I doubted they'd see me, just a speck in the ocean, if I waved. And besides, if I stopped paddling for a minute to try to get their attention, I'd float further backwards with the current into the increasingly huge and empty ocean. Plus I'd look like a goose. So I kept my head down, kept paddling, and gave thanks to the long lefts of South America that had got me this fit. If I wasn't making progress landwards, at least I wasn't going further out to sea. As I went, I got to thinking. The high tide must have peaked while I surfed, and now the six-square-kilometre lagoon was returning its contents to the ocean for the next five hours. It was just me and the sea. What to do? To my left, about 300 metres away, waves were breaking on the reef that fringed the other side of the channel. This fringe reef was much closer to shore than the reef where I'd been surfing. So my best bet was to paddle across the channel to this reef and try to reach land from there. This would mean paddling across the outrushing current and being swept further out to sea. But what the hay? I had no other option. To ignore how fast I was approaching the horizon, I kept my eyes fixed on the backs of the waves that, with a bit of luck, would soon carry me to safety across the northern reef. Once across the channel, I was pleased to find I was free of the current, so I rested for a while. Then I paddled a 100 metres further north up the reef, making sure to stay beyond the line of where the biggest sets broke. As a good-sized wave surged underneath me, I watched how it peaked up, then spilled across the reef. As I'd hoped, the waves broke without too much ferocity, and I could see no patches of dry reef when the white water surged across it to the lagoon. There was no question of actually surfing one of these waves. My aim was to simply catch the wash of a broken closeout and ride it lying down for as far as it would carry me. After waiting for one more set of waves to break, I paddled hard to get close to the reef before the next set arrived. I timed my run well. The next wave broke 30 metres before it reached me, and I caught the powerful whitewater easily. It zhushed me two-thirds of the way across the reef. Then I was able to fingertip paddle the rest of the way to the lagoon as the last waves of the set surged behind me. I'd thought I might have to walk the last part of the way, dodging urchins, sharp coral and poisonous fish, but it hadn't come to that. Mission half accomplished. Cue massive sigh of relief. Now the full force of the current was evident. Between me and dry land, 
A 200-metre-wide river was running. Not walking, fair income running. It was clear that if I tried to paddle to shore from where I lay, I'd be swept out of the lagoon entrance in less than a minute. But, for some hydrodynamic reason, the water along the inside edge of the reef was almost untouched by the current. This allowed me to easily paddle a few hundred metres further north to where the distance to land was shortest. After resting for another minute, I set out on the final sprint. As expected, I went sideways towards the open ocean three times faster than toward the shore. But after a couple of hundred fierce paddle strokes, I discovered I'd escaped the worst of the current and was in relatively still water. Another few hundred metres later, I'd reached dry land. Hallelujah. That'll always be right up there in my top three stressiest surfing experiences. Not fun. After three days in Huahine, Tim, Ninette and I caught the dusk boat back to Papaiti. Arriving after midnight, we found no taxis waiting at the docks. So we set out to walk to town, lugging all our stuff to look for a cheap hotel. When a car pulled up beside us and asked if we needed help, it was clear that neighbourly assistance was not what these five bad boys had in mind. Things were progressing quickly from you're kidding to this is really bloody serious when a police van came from nowhere and the dodgy locals took off. The police threw our bags in the back of their van and drove us to the hotel of their choice. It was a lot more expensive than what we'd hoped to find, but infinitely better than what they'd saved us from. The next day, we rode Le Truck through lush scenery and heavy rain squalls down the west coast of the Big Island as far as Papara and back. In the evening, we took our flight to New Zealand. In Auckland Airport, I said goodbye to Ninette and Tim, who had friends to meet around the North Island. On the cruisy flight to Sydney a few hours later, I was seated smack bang in the middle of a joyous crowd of Chilenos heading to Australia for Christmas with their families. I'd asked my family to let me get the train home from the airport to complete the journey in appropriate style. But after waiting six and a half years for this moment, Mum wasn't going to wait any longer. So as I emerged into the arrivals hall to find an excited sea of Chilean expats waiting for their families, there was mine, wedged in between them, waving like Billy-O from behind the silver fence. The last two weeks of 1993 were a blur. With just ten weeks before I was moving to New Zealand to work in Mike's Dunedin Cafe, I tried to catch up with everyone and everything. Christmas Day was the family day we hoped it would be, a day-long feast with presents under the tree and laps of the pool to make room for the next course. Looking back, it was one of the few when all six of us were in the same country. On Boxing Day, I went up the coast to a party with old friends at Johnny's Place at McMaster's Beach. A few days later... We surfed Box Head together for the first time. On New Year's Eve, I went to a party in Avalon with about 50 people from school days, my first ever girlfriend among them. Sometime after midnight, we sat on South Avalon headland and watched the moon ride the glassy waves. There might have even been dolphins, but I'm not sure I can trust my memory on that one. So 1994 began as if 1993 hadn't finished. My dad, two brothers and I went to the Sydney Cricket Ground to watch a couple of days of the second test against the South Africans. Shane Warne took 12 wickets, but Australia spooned their second innings to lose by five runs. I went with mum and dad north to Shoal Bay, 
then went south with Gint and his mate Murray to camp at Maru Point. After a few dreamlike days of surf and music, we fled the bushfires that tore along the east coast that summer. We stopped in Ulladulla at Victor and Diana's, then drove home past a horrifying wall of flame tearing through the Royal National Park. I surfed the Bower, Palmy, Newport, Bungan and Crossies, finding them exactly as I'd remembered them in my insomniac hours. I went to see the Cruel Sea and the Celibate Rifles, two Sydney bands I'd fallen in love with during 1993. In February, from old friends and new, we made a 12-piece band called the Shambolics. On the last day before I moved to New Zealand, in a sunny Willoughby backyard, we recorded a still-unreleased album that includes some of the songs written on the year-long road home. And that week, if she hadn't been too shy to come to a Shambolics jam when her best friend Flea invited her, I'd have met Anne-Marie, the girl I still can't believe I was lucky enough to marry, twelve years and two and a half times round the world later. But that's another story. Thanks for listening to 1993. I hope you enjoyed the ride. If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at the We're Only Here Once Instagram page. You can find the text of the stories at jameswiley.com. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Big love and thanks to my family and friends without whom this wouldn't exist. And if you want to make a podcast, look up Rod Murray at Sydney Podcast Studios. Thanks for dropping in. See ya. Summertime.